We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This is the Big Shift for Small Farms podcast. G'day listeners, I'm your host Edgar Greste. Many of our listeners in the Greater Sydney region have been heavily impacted by recent flooding at the end of March of this year. So in this episode, we're bringing you a special recording at a field day on flood recovery, hosted by Greater Sydney Local Land Services at their demonstration farm in April. Our producer Olivia Ralph was there to capture some insights from the event. There's been a lot of talk in recent years about fire and drought. So when last month's flood in the Hawkesbury-Nepean River region of Western Sydney came, it caught many by surprise. It peaked at a staggering 12.9 metres, with water engulfing properties and houses in the area quite aptly known as the Sackville Bathtub. As the name suggests, this flat, low-lying section of the region is quite familiar with flood events, but even the most seasoned landholder was caught by surprise at the speed and the intensity at which this flood came through. I had uh, growers ringing me saying, what do we do with this flooded paddock? Um, can, can you give me some names of some good turf farmers to talk to? And... Richard Stevens is the Regional Agriculture Land Care Facilitator for Greater Sydney Local Land Services. He put together a field day not long after the floods receded to bring together farmers and experts. And I was thinking, well, you probably need to speak with more agronomists rather than turf farm because um, uh, growing pasture for for livestock is a lot different to growing turf. The bad news is that flood events like the one we just experienced are not unusual. The good news is that with the right advice and the right planning, farmers and those living and working on the land can protect themselves, their property and their businesses. Hi, I'm Olivia Ralph and on this episode of the Big Shift for Small Farms podcast, we'll be hearing from some farmers and some experts about what they learned from the recent floods and how they plan to make plans for the next one. We got hit pretty badly by the Hawkesbury River floods that just recently occurred. We got a lot of pasture damage and a lot of river damage as well right along along the riverfront. So we have to look at what we're going to do to repair and get our property up and running again. The days and weeks following a flood event can pose a unique set of challenges for farmers. Initially, the focus will be on the immediate welfare of animals, ensuring they have access to adequate food, water and shelter. But as Alana and other farmers in the region discovered, it's also important to manage any erosion that might have developed or accelerated after floodwaters have receded. Hi, I'm Alana. I grew up in the Hawkesbury region, but I actually work in the city and I manage a property out at Sackville. Uh, My name's Amy and I manage a horse stud at Pitt Town. We've been there since 2003. We had a smaller flood last year about the same time, um, which... uh, We had a lot of problems following that flood uh, with sick sick horses and um, yeah, a lot of our pastures were destroyed, fences destroyed. Um, So this year we're a little bit more prepared. Um, We've moved all the stock off. Do you think the biggest difference with last year's flood and this year's is your experience in handling it? Yeah, I think having the experience of, of the flood last year yeah, we decided to, to move the stock off rather than just try and sort of soldier on and keep them on. Uh, I think that got us into a lot of trouble last year. There was water lying on the ground that was contaminated. Um, so we ended up getting... Um, a lot of our young horses were very sick. And we've had a flow-on effect 
since then, um, affecting fertility in the brood mares and um, and just and just their overall condition. They've struggled, uh, and I think it all goes back to the contamination of the water and the soil. And um, yeah, so we're going to give it more time this time because we have that um, had that experience last year that sort of prepared us for the worst, really. Yeah. And Alana, you managed to get your stock off in time, I believe. Was that a, a forward-thinking move or luck of the draw? I think it was a bit luck of the draw. I don't think anyone really expected it to come up as quick as it did. Uh, it broke the riverbank and then within an hour and a half, they were three, four metres, probably more under. It just came up so quickly and we were lucky. Unfortunately, I wasn't actually able to get on site so our neighbours helped out and moved the cattle onto a neighbour's property which was just amazing you know it's beautiful to see that communities come together in times of need. What's a piece of advice you'd give to someone who is probably just starting out or like Alana who it's her first year and she's been whacked with a huge flood and then fires. My best advice would be if you live on a floodplain or if you, if you have a property on a floodplain is to have a plan and don't ever think that it won't happen. Uh, when we designed our property, we knew we were on a floodplain, so we made sure that all our paddocks ran into laneways that ran up to the high ground, so it's really easy for us to move stock up um, in a hurry if we need to. All the locals told us, you know, the water comes in slow, you've got plenty of time, but as we saw with this last flood, it came in really fast and it surprised a lot of people. Um, so we had a plan A and when, it, when the water rose past our plan A, we had a plan B. Uh, and so we didn't um, get into trouble. We got all the stock out safely. Um, yeah, so my best advice would be to always have a plan and don't think that it, that it can't happen because it, it will. It does and it will. So days like today, you've come in, Amy, with a plan. Is there anything that you're going to change from that plan from what you've heard today? Um, no, I'm going to go ahead with the plan. Um, my agronomist that I use, Adam Little, was part of this um, event today. And, um, yeah, the information that I heard here today was, you know, along the same lines as what we are following. So it just gives me confidence to go ahead now with the plan that we've got. And, Alana, for you, what's the sort of first thing you're going to actionably do when you get home? Uh, so we did kind of have a pasture plan in place with Adam Little as well. He's such a resource in this area, really knowledgeable. Uh, we've just got to work on our pastures. Once they've dried out a little bit more, we can actually get the tractor on there and start slashing them and mulching them down and then just continue with the, the clean-up. So it's all you can do, really, one step at a time and hope that it all works out for the best and we don't get a flood in the near future. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Tom Gillespie, uh, property at McGrath's Hill, and uh, we're running currently uh, beef cattle. Talk about what brought you to this field day today. Well, we've, like everybody else, we've been inundated with a lot of flood water. Uh, 70, probably 70% of our pastures have been wrecked with, the, uh, with all the floods because we had water lying for quite some time. Uh, we'd already started to, um, to sow some, broadcast some seed, and uh, so, it was an opportunity when we seen this just to confirm what we were already doing and so coming along and and there were some good things um, so that 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 sort of was a, an encouragement for us and something that we've learned so we've broadcast picking paddocks that were a bit higher up uh, so we put it gone in with oats and that on that and when we get them finished slashing in the next few days then we're going to go in with um, we're sowing some uh, urea and that on top. Because we've used up a lot of our feed that we had stored for winter, um, we will then try to grow green feed and get that up and running. 
And so coming into today, <clears throat> did you have any questions in particular that you were seeking answers for or just sort of seeing that you were well, on the right track? Well, I think, yes, I think that we learned something because um, I would have been happy to probably go in with a lot more oats and some of the low ground. And so what they were saying that the, uh, the choice of that wasn't the wisest. So it sort of an allows us then to switch to where we've already planted ryegrass from before. We will go in on the low paddocks with ryegrass again because it seems to respond better with the wet. And plus the fact that we've got a lot of silt that's left on the ground as well. Yep. And were the floods this year a bit of a surprise or? Um, yes, very much. Because uh, we had it 12 months ago and, um, and then this time and the fact that we've got so much uh, development that's going on in the Blacktown uh, region and what have you in Marsden Park and so the floodwaters are coming a lot quicker and there's bigger problems. Because it's not, you don't have the land to soak it up? Um, the water can't get away as quick because it's coming much quicker and uh, because of the airport and different things that they're building at Bar Badgeries Creek a lot of the uh, catchment areas have been altered and a lot of the big dams have been filled in and so consequently we're getting much more water coming this way and coming quicker. And you've been in the game for 25 years, at what least. are, at least? <laughs> yes, more. <laughs> what, what have you noticed, you know, what are the, fl the floods this year and last year, how are they different or the same to the floods from 20 years ago? Well, I think that the floods, like going back, well, more than 20 years, Warragamba Dam was, when we started off first, Warragamba Dam was nowhere near as high as what it is now. So, of course they do. But this time, because of the amount of water we had last year, the dam wasn't able to take everything that was coming. And we copped a lot more rain, which is to be expected because we control a lot of things, but there's only one person that controls the rain. And we have got no say in it. So from that point of view, yes, there's changes. But we have got enough ground to bring the cattle up. Uh, we've just got to be in a situation where we can utilize feed. This is about to fall away and, and, and go dormant. So we're going to over-sow ryegrasses into those and they're going to be used different methods. So we're going to use different methods and different strategies. You'll be able to see the successful establishment of those ryegrasses in there. It's quite different. I already know the answer to it, but it's very good as a visual thing to actually see as a producer that if you do nothing and you throw at your ryegrass, what it's going to achieve if you actually mulch what it's going to achieve and then if you go down with a knockdown the actual real result of what actually can, you can get coming up and the success of that. Hi my name's Adam Little, um, I'm the Senior Agronomist with Ace Olsen and uh, Livestock Specialist especially with Equine at McGrath Hill. And what are your observations of these first few weeks since the floods? Yeah look we've had some pretty ideal conditions actually coming out of the flood in the fact we've had warm weather to allow re-pasture growth so it's been able to dry and we've also had conditions where the areas have dried out really quickly so people have been able to get back and sort out their, their, their issues pretty far. Coming out of a flood event, it can take a few weeks to get a full picture of what damage has been done and how to start rebuilding. Agronomist Adam Little says the most common questions he gets from clients relate to grazing animals on flood-affected pastures. Looking back towards coming out of a, out of a flood, we advise our clients to actually slash off the grass that's been affected by the floods in the fact that it's got full of silt. If it's full of silt, especially with horses, they're single gutted animals, they can cause colics and other issues. So at the end of the day, remove that, 
allow the grass to regrow. So you've got new fresh grass coming out of the top of that, so they're not grazing dead and dying grass or silt-coloured grass. And then we allow two to three weeks and then put the animals back on there. Water quality-wise, I say to people, if you're worried about the water quality, fence it off from your livestock. Keep them away from it. Don't allow to drink it. Use fresh water in that case to, to, to get them through. There is nothing better than fresh water for animals to drink. Anything that's time it's contaminated with silt or it's contaminated with other bacterial, then you're going to give yourself animal health issues. You talked about slashing off that affected yeah. pasture. What's the best way to go about doing that? And then what do you do with the byproduct? Okay, so you can either use a, a fine mulching uh, a mulcher or a slasher. A mulcher does it actually better in the fact that you're just topping that top of the grass off. You only just want to take it down, so leaving about uh, a 50 mil residue on the ground, um, and and then then you'll get regrowth from that. You don't want to leave big windrows of old dead grass. You actually want to cut it pretty fine, and that's why we say mulch it or, or use a good quality slasher. People have been using mowers, pulling pulling out their right up mowers, and actually doing the paddocks that way because they're getting a fine cut. So. so we're now how many weeks out from the flood? Two and a half. What should a farmer be looking at doing right now? Okay, so you'll have a lot of uh, new regrowth coming through your paddocks. There'll be also a lot of weeds. So weed controls one of your issues, especially coming through. Two is um, the green grass that's coming through is going to have a really high water content. So for any of the farmers out there, they really need to be looking to balance those diets. So yes, you're going to have green grass and green pick, but also have some hay or some drier roughage to, a, to balance that gut up. So you're not going to have colic or upset stomach issues or diarrhea or any of those animal health issues, which are then going to have long-term effects, breeding, that kind of stuff. Make sure that your animals are vaccinated is really important because if they get cuts and nicks after these conditions, there's certainly bacterial, you know, bacteria out there which can cause them cuts, swellings, all that kind of stuff. Drenching is really critical. You're going to have fluke and barber's pole worm out and about in these conditions. So making sure your animals are vaccinated, drenched and, and fed well and clean water are your, probably your four keys to getting moving past this flood. It can be tempting to jump in and start planting immediately to fix pastures affected by floodwaters. But the best advice is to hold off until you can fully assess the damage. And knowing what to do next will depend on the time of year the flood occurs. From my perspective, sometimes it's, it's just rushing things. Um, you know, it always takes, a, you know, we, we, we get a flood, everyone wants to know what's going to happen, what's died, what hasn't, and it simply takes time to, to see that sort of um, results. Neil Griffiths is an expert in flood recovery, working as an agronomist and pasture specialist with the New South Wales DPI in the Hunter Valley for nearly four decades. And you can use um, clever bits of equipment like a bit of old um, Rio rod to uh, tell us a little bit of stuff as well. Just a little bit here to see what's going on. So, so there's pretty good soil moisture there in that, that patch, okay? You can find that sort of thing quite easily with, with a little probe like that. So if you're looking at, is it safe to drive the tractor or am I going to get bogged? How far is it dried out down the paddock? Just something simple like that can be easy. Every time we get a flood, different, we get a different result. That's sort of the time of year, particularly how hot or cold it is, has a big influence on what's going to live and die that's been underwater. How long was it underwater for? And that means every paddock has a range of answers. What are the differences between floods in spring versus flood in winter versus 
other seasons? Yeah, two, two things. One is the temperature that in warm water, plants die quicker. It loses its oxygen, so they drown. basically they drown. Um, so that happens is a bigger problem in warm water. Cooler floods in the winter time, that's not such an issue. But the other thing that's d different about the times of year is what we can plant afterwards if we have to recover. And, and I did make the comment that a flood at this time of year, this is our normal busiest time for planting pastures. Most of our winter pastures are planted now. So unless people have already been out and planted paddocks that have now been drowned and have to be replanted a second time, that's, that's obviously a big problem. If the flood hadn't occurred till say July, there's nothing we can plant in July that's going to recover before October, November in the earliest. If we plant in summertime, we've got to wait till now, till we can plant. So floods at different times a year, you've got different, you know, it kills things faster or slower, but also there's different sowing options with what you might be able to plant. And as I said, at the moment, if you've got to have a flood, now's as good a time to have one as, as any other time as far as recovering after it. And it's not just about the recovery above ground, but also what's going on under our feet. Soil testing is an important component to managing your recovery. When soils are flooded and waterlogged, particularly for an extended period, you get all sorts of different chemical changes happening. Sort of, It's a big chemical soup there and things are reacting that differently to how they normally would. So the, the main things, I guess, that we're concerned about usually will be uh, nutrients phosphorus and nitrogen that they will they will change but what happens with any of those sources of nitrogen when the soils have been waterlogged for a period you have two things happen one is that we and particularly on free draining sandy type soils we may have leaching where the nitrogen's been washed down through the soil or if it's just simply been waterlogged, we get a, what's called denitrification, which is where the nitrogen that was in the soil for plants to use has been turned into nitrogen gas and lost to the atmosphere. So either way, we, you know, waterlogged soils, um, flooded soils have almost certainly lost a lot of their nitrogen. So we're not worried about doing anything about that immediately, but when the new when we plant something, a bit of new growth coming through will need to be fertilised basically. Now there are different options with that. Urea is usually the most common and most cost effective um, but it needs to have something there to use it so people that are now looking to either their kikuyu is starting to recover and they want extra growth out of kikuyu or they've planted ryegrass or oats they need to think about in the next few weeks when we get another change come through and maybe 10 or 20 mils of rain happening take the opportunity to put some urea type fertiliser out or equivalent to try and make sure that there's nitrogen there for those grasses to grow. Otherwise, we, A, we won't get any growth and B, any growth that is there is going to be very stunted. Um, all plants need nitrogen of some sort. Can you talk a bit about what you need to be thinking about? Not just what you need, but how do you use it? Yeah, look, I, I guess yeah, the, the fundamentals are that we need nitrogen, we need phosphorus. So that was the other thing that like phosphorus, we just use as a starter type fertiliser as we normally would. So that should look after the phosphorus situation, um, assuming that we've already got um, a reasonable level of fertility in, in the soil. I guess the, the, there's different, I, I said about urea, um, I think there was a little bit of discussion about liquid fertilisers, we also talked a little bit about manures and composts and the like. The, the nitrogen in those fertilisers is the, going to react pretty much the same in the soil, so the point is if you need 
40 kilos of nitrogen, whether that comes from urea or liquids or compost, you still need 40 kilos. So where we get caught up is there are some people think that because we're using a liquid fertiliser or a different type of fertiliser, maybe we can get away with much, much less. And rarely have we seen that. When we've conducted trials looking at those sorts of things, um, it nearly always pans out that sort of, if, if you use 10 kilos of nitrogen, you get 10 kilos equivalent of growth. If you use 40 kilos, you get the, you get a proportional amount. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, we're, we don't get sort of magic results very often. Weeds are another common occurrence after a flood event, mainly due to the reduced competition in the pasture. But not all weeds are the same. There are some to be cautious of as they can become toxic to livestock, while some others are merely just a nuisance. There are some weeds that we need to be very, very cautious of and the poisonous things like green cestrum that we talked about down the riverbank is certainly one of those. People need to know what it looks like and, and be right on top of it because it's so poisonous it can be a disaster if you, if you miss that one. For other weeds, um, they, they can be a problem. The, the challenge with a lot of these weeds after the flood is making, you know, people might know what they look like when they're out in flower and a big full grown weed, but we need to be able to identify the young seedlings because that's what, that's when they're easiest to control. And if, and the, most of the damage, if we plant a new pasture, the damage is early on in the season. So we need to get that pasture established and growing. So if people are going to deal with their weeds, doing it early is a good thing but not getting too overexcited, like we were looking at a little bit of plantain and things. So there's weeds out there that are nuisance weeds rather than a major disaster. So um, yeah, some of them we'll just put up with, some of them are palatable, stock will graze them. So at the moment, sort of, yeah, we, we pick our fights a little bit and if we've got a paddock that's sort of coming back okay but there's a few weeds, it's not ideal, but hey, we've probably got bigger issues in other paddocks to, to deal with. But it's something we need to be very mindful of, um, particularly if there are new weeds that we haven't seen before, then we probably want to get right on top of those. We want to know what weeds are in the area that are major weeds, like the green cestrum, like some of those perennial grasses. They're really tricky. That's but you know, if we get um, African love grass, giant Parramatta grass, those sorts of things established, they can easily halve the carrying capacity of, of some of this good, good land. So we want to be able to, but it may, may not be till next spring that we identify those problems as occurring. But yeah, so the, the weed, we see what's there now, but it's something we're going to be watching and looking for new weeds for the next year or two, because it may take that long for them to become noticeable. A lot of farmers might have gone through the droughts, the fires, and now the floods. What's the difference when you've been hit three times over? Yeah, look, it just it bounce up, doesn't it? And that's one of the real challenges. We go from one extreme to the other, and how do you manage manage those sorts of things? You know, do you irrigate? Don't you irrigate? Do you conserve feed? Don't, don't you? I guess for all of us, we've got to be able to recognise those things, and, and it's you know, a great risk management thing that the economists like to talk about, but it really is. Um, you know, how do we prepare for the next one? We know these things are happening. How do we recognise it early? What are our fallback positions and responding early? You know, the people that are able to identify a problem and respond early because they've thought about it before and they've got plan B in place, 
they're generally going to be, be better off. The big difference, I guess, between floods and fires compared to drought is that they happen overnight, you know, short term, but also recovery can come a lot quicker. Another topic that was brought up today that I think is the most opaque is water contamination, particularly around here where you've got a few different treatment plants and all the rain and Warragamba wasn't as empty as it has been in previous years when these sorts of events have happened. What's your advice on how to manage your water and, and make sure that it's not a threat to your livestock or to your own health? Yeah, look, I, uh, that, that was the, the, the hard question of the day, wasn't it, really? And, and there was no easy answer other than I think everyone agreed and there were some representatives of, of other organisations here that sort of are doing a bit of testing of, particularly of water, but soils and so forth. And I think we all agreed that the more tests, we need to have that testing. We need to make sure that it's available to people so they know. There are some things that we all identify as potential risk factors because we're in a semi-urban type area. We've got the, the big populations nearby and any runoff that might come from those areas. But some of those factors are can, may be just natural factors as well that have come from waterlogged soils. It might be tannins coming out of the bush. It might be not here so much, but other areas that may be effects of acid sulphate soils that have happened. Um, so there's a range of things there that may be natural, if you like, that makes, makes them no less of a problem, but just it, it's a challenge for everyone to, and all the different organisations that are involved in those things to, to try and work out what is happening, having a better understanding. Part of that is getting as much testing done, not just now, but ongoing monitoring to really understand what happens with all those things so that we may be able, you know, some of those things we may be able to ameliorate it might be that sort of you know whether it's treatment works or whatever there might be some different things that might might help it might be just recognizing yes it is a problem and we've got to keep stock off it or whatever it's going that time may be the cure sort of yeah we were talking about pathogens and and what diseases might be out there well sunlight is one of the best um, things to, to stop pathogens and it's simply going to be time and we've had two or three weeks now of nice sunny weather so hopefully that risk is much less now than it may have been a fortnight ago. And what about you, Richard? I, I think people need to be, whilst we're in one big catchment, people are in sort of sub-catchments, if you like, and people should be aware of what's where their waters come from and if there's a caravan park or, or a big industrial state just, just further upstream from where they are, that's what they need to look out for because obviously that, they might get some contaminants from their little sub-catchment and it's going to be very varied. As Neil said, time is a, is a good healer, and especially sunlight in this regard. So be aware, be informed, and just be cautious. Recovering from a flood can be an overwhelming task, and the journey to recovery can be long, but there is help to be found. Greater Sydney LLS is just one example. From expert workshops to community field days, there is a growing community of support to help you plan and prepare. Richard Stevens and Neil Griffiths again. I think people are becoming more long-term thinkers and they're looking towards greater sustainability over the longer term. It's easy to sort of throw out a heap of fertiliser and make uh, a lot of growth really quickly but is that economic in the long term and how do we build soil fertility that's sustainable 
um, that's a big change. And I also think in relation to floods, droughts and fires, people are seeing the benefit of having a plan and planning um, because if you thought about something, what you'd do in situation X before it happens, you, you're going to get a better result than if you haven't thought about it. Yeah, look, I, I would agree with that in, entirely. If you've thought about it, you've got some targets that you're looking for. You identify those problems a bit earlier. Yeah, sometimes people say, oh, gee, I de-stopped too early and I should have you know, rained after or just after I sold my cattle. But for every person that says that, there's a thousand that hold them too long and don't respond. So part of risk management is to spread your risk. So it might be that we de-stock a bit early. It might be that we plant some things now. But I was talking to one one fellow here earlier and we were talking about where is he going to plant and he's got a lot of um, old rank feed there and the comment was let's go and graze some of it really hard now to try and use as much of that feed as we can then we'll go through and slash or mulch and try and replant that area but we won't do that to the whole area because some of that old feed even though it's old and and not particularly good feed that's our insurance if things go nasty in winter time that feed might still be used if we haven't used it by um, middle of spring we need to get rid of it at that point because that's kikuyu and summer growing feed it'll be rubbish next summer so um, we're going to spread our risk and we're going to try and do some stuff um, now get some new pastures planted hope that works but none of us can guarantee what the weather's going to do over the next few months we can guess but we're not 100 percent sure so let's spread our risk and if things are good we can that's great but if things aren't so good we might get to use some of that um, that rough feed now so that's just a way that he's looking at at being able to spread that risk he can't use or do everything at once he, he needs to have somewhere to put the animals at the moment so so we're just sort of you know doing different things in different areas to, to suit that longer term sort of plan and he's got you know plan B is sort of it'll by next Christmas hopefully it's all back operating nicely talk to people who actually have more knowledge in this area than I do. Uh, the first step we took was just clean up so then we could assess the damage that actually did occur because it can look very overwhelming as you said first off and you go oh where do I start and just by cleaning it up you can go oh okay it's not as bad that area can be managed quite easily this area is going to need a bit more work okay I need a specialist to come in and help me with this area. We were very, very lucky and I know a lot of people weren't, but in times of need you can really rely on, on the community, which is lovely to know. And you just got to keep moving forward. You might take one step, you know, two steps forward, one step back, but you just soldier on and that's all you, that's all you do, isn't it? This podcast has been produced by the Grow Love Project on behalf of Greater Sydney Local Land Services. The episode was recorded, mixed and edited by our awesome reporter, Olivia Ralph, and our equally awesome executive producer was Susanna Cable. Thanks to everyone who participated in the making of this episode. You can find out more about them in the show notes and to listen to other episodes, make sure to subscribe to the episode. And if you know someone who could benefit, please share it with them. Thanks for listening. <laughs>